Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 and if you want to follow along with me it's in page 961 of your pew bibles okay beginning Malachi excuse me beginning Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 to 4 I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before you then suddenly The Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a refiner of, and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings of righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. And if you turn the page, we're now going to read Malachi chapter 4, and we're going to go right to the end. Surely the Lord is coming and will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, for the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your foot on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the laws of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave you at Horeb, and all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, David, for reading for us. Um, now, at the very outset, I'd, I'd love you to, uh, uh, to look at, um, at what you can see on the screen. And for David's sake, I will describe it. Um, so on the screen, you see a, a rectangle, brown rectangle, unexciting, very straightforward, very clear, very easy. But suppose I now show you what it looks like side on. Uh, And then you discover that, in fact, you're not looking at one rectangle, but two brown rectangles, one in front of the other. And, of course, this explains Advent. Okay, um, a little bit more explanation about why this explains Advent for you. Because Advent literally means coming or arrival. And we easily focus on the first of the comings or arrivals. 
You know, we get excited with our advent calendars and opening little windows and, and counting down the days. We, we, we get our advent candles and we light them one by one and ticking down the Sundays until we get to Christmas Day. And our focus is on that first arrival. But historically, Advent has always had in mind two arrivals, two comings, uh, and has focused not just on the coming of Jesus as a baby, humbly, but also focused on the coming of Jesus in glory as a judge. Uh, And those two arrivals are woven together So much so that when the the Old Testament speaks of the coming of the Messiah, it rarely talks about the first coming without some things to say about the second coming at the same moment. And, And that's exactly how it is in Malachi and the two readings that we heard from David a moment ago. But it's not just the Old Testament that kind of merges together uh, these two arrivals of the Messiah. Now, the New Testament does it as well. Uh, John the Baptist, in fact, does it. Um, So so look for a moment, before we get to Malachi, look for a moment at uh, John the Baptist's words at the very start of Matthew's Gospel. Here's what he has to say. I baptize you with water for repentance, says John. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Picture of the judgment. But, but maybe you might think, well, that, that's John the Baptist for you. Um, slightly funny character, um, wore funny clothes and ate locusts all day. No wonder he had funny things to say. Only, of course, just move a few chapters further on and you find that Jesus has almost identical things to say. It, Jesus tells a parable about the wheat and the, the weeds And and in his parable, he has the servants coming to the master and saying, look, there are all these weeds growing in amongst the wheat that you've planted. Do you want us to pull the weeds up for you? Would that help? Uh, And in the parable, uh, uh, the answer comes, no. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, First, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. More words of judgment, this time from Jesus. Actually, you scan through the gospel accounts and pretty soon you realize that Jesus talks about judgment to come about as much as he talks about anything. It's a big theme of his teaching. But but perhaps unsurprisingly, we overlook it. We we like to to hustle past. Well, this morning we're not going to hustle past the theme of judgment. Uh, We're going to dwell upon it. 
Uh, and uh, we're going to notice three things about the judgment of God uh, from those uh, passages in Malachi. Three things. Uh, here's the first. First, judgment is sudden, but there is a warning. Um, uh, from Malachi chapter 3, uh, the second verse. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And in those verses you can see you, you get that, that twin idea both of suddenness but also of warning. And in a sense, what we're going to see over and over again is the way that Malachi is, is blending together the two comings of Jesus. Um, Jesus often spoke of the way that his return, the return of the Son of Man, would, would catch people unawares. Again and again he'd say, the Son of Man will come like a thief in the night. don't know if you've been burgled. Uh, we've, we've been burgled lots of times. Um, my favourite burglary of ours was, was when I heard some noise in the middle of the night and I looked out of the window into the street outside um, and uh, there were some people uh, carrying sort of stuff down the road. And I thought, blow me, what are they up to? I thought, I know, someone's been burgled. And they popped it into their car and I thought, oh, I can see, can see the number plate, couldn't see the number plate. I thought, you know, I'd better go and phone. The police, I think somebody's been burgled. So I went downstairs, found out it was us. We'd been burgled. Um, now, had I known, had they popped a card through the door earlier in the week, said, look, we're thinking about coming to burglary on the weekend, yeah, I wouldn't have been caught unawares. I would have done something to prepare. But no warning was heeded. No warning given. Well, Jesus says, for some people, it's going to be just like that. His return will be for them like a thief in the night and find them entirely unprepared. Um, but that's what makes warning so important. And God brings warnings. I'll send my messenger, uh, we hear in Malachi, who'll prepare the way before me. You get exactly the same idea over the page in Malachi chapter 4. Um, see, towards the end of the chapter in verse 5, where we read, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day comes. And you might think, is that right? Elijah? Did, did, did he come a second time in advance? Well, maybe you remember in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus says, I tell you, for those who understand it, John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. Right from the beginning, Jesus speaks words of warning. But think about almost the very first words that Jesus says in the Gospel accounts. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So, so the first key thing, though the return of Jesus and the judgment that he brings with it is sudden, he brings warnings. But we know how it is with warnings. They get overlooked, don't they? Uh, a friend of ours um, 
had a car that broke down dramatically on the motorway. Uh, engine, complete failure. Um, and um, a while after, she was talking about this incident, and she said, it's been a miserable car from the very beginning. Hated this car, full of just irritating things. Like, for, for, for almost the entire time I had it, which wasn't very long, uh, there was this, this bright light distracting me on the dashboard. I tried everything to turn it off, and it just there throughout. Eventually, I put a sticking plaster over it. Yes, the oil warning light was indeed glowing and annoying her throughout the entire time that she had the car, until eventually the car died. True story. If we don't want the arrival of Jesus to come to us like a thief in the night, then you have to heed the warnings. Do we? Are we? Uh, maybe you're somebody who has not yet made your mind up what you think about the Christian faith, what, what you make of Jesus and these claims. Well, heed his warnings uh, to find out what he offers to find out who he is and respond to him. Um, so, first thing, uh, the judgment that God brings through Christ in his second coming is sudden, but there is a warning. Then second, the judgment that Jesus brings is absolute, but there is a refining. Um, uh, again, uh, in Malachi chapter 4, we're going to jump between the two passages um, uh, look at the beginning of verse, of, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. And what these verses are reminding us and telling us about is that on the day of judgment, evil will be removed forever. No root will remain, which means that evil will not be able to regrow. No branch will be left, which means that the fruit of evil will be gone forever. Um, and both those things make this a good day. It, it's, it's so easy, isn't it, to, to see the idea of a judgment day in very negative terms. And we sort of think, well, the Christian faith would be much easier to, to, to present to other people if it didn't have this sort of awkward judgment business in it. You know, it would be, be great if we could just sort of get rid of that bit. But when we think like that, we fail to understand that the day of judgment is a good day because it means that evil and sin will be set aside forever. And, and with it will go all suffering, all heartache, all weeping. Because every single hardship that you suffer or that those you love suffer, every experience of pain and hurt, all of it traces back finally to the ruinous impact of evil and sin. Imagine, if you like, a, a countryside that is blighted by a polluted river. And the ruin from that pollution is evident everywhere. The crops fail. Lovely prize gardens 
ruined. Livestock constantly getting sick. And, and the people in that polluted land, well, they do all they can to try and offset the impact of the pollution. They, they treat the sick animals. They put lots of new topsoil in those prized gardens. They give lots of fertilizer to try and salvage the crops. But whatever they do, it's never enough. The damage remains, the damage continues. Until at last the source of the pollution is identified. And that pollution is cut off at its source. Because when they do that, when they shut off the inflow of pollutants, then finally the land is transformed. Now finally the land can flourish and be all that it was, had the potential to be. Well, well, that's the picture for us of what lies ahead on the judgment day. When, when the, the impact of sin and evil is finally eradicated forever. And the judgment day will be a good day, a blessed day. And the New Testament speaks of it far more uh, than we often notice. Um, look at this from uh, Peter's second letter, where Peter says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And the implication that this is the way that things will end at the second coming, well, the implication comes in the very next verse where Peter says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. That's how the New Testament paints it for us. Because of this day that's coming, because of the certainty of the eradication of sin and evil, because of the sureness of God's judgment, well, if you believe in that, then live in a way that seeks to grow in purity. Malachi brings those two ideas together. Remember what I'm trying to say is that Malachi has both of the two comings of Jesus in view. So as he is writing about the terrible judgment, so he's also writing about the, the impact of the first coming of the Messiah as well. So there's destruction on the one hand, but there's purifying on the other. Uh, Malachi uh, puts it like this um, in chapter 3 and verse 2. The Messiah will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And this refining, this sort of making pure of God's people, well, it's both his work and ours. It's always the way it works in Christian growth. He does it, and yet we are also called to do it. 100% him, 100% us. Remembering the judgment stirs believers to live holy lives. And God does his purifying work in us. So two things we've seen. First, the judgment is, is sudden. Uh, but there is a warning. Uh, second, the judgment is absolute, uh, removing evil and, uh, and sin completely. Uh, but for now, we're in a period of refining for God's people. 
Uh, and then thirdly, uh, the judgment is unendurable, but there is a way out. Um, though I've said, and, and Malachi points to this, that the goodness of God's judgment, the destruction of evil, the refining of God's people, uh, Malachi also won't let us overlook the, the, the awfulness of this day. Um, who can endure, we read, chapter 3 and verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a laundress soap. In other words, Malachi's God saying to us, listen, this, this refining work of God, this eradication of evil is so absolute, it's so intense. How can anyone possibly stand in the face of it? Before the blazing purity of God, who, who could possibly endure? Because remember what we've been seeing and saying. In the judgment, sin and evil and everything that flows from it are eradicated forever and completely. But then, of course, the question comes, well, what of us? What of you and me? We belong to this sinful world. Our hearts are tainted with the evil that God is committed to removing. So if God is going to create a, a heavens and an earth in which sin and evil are absolutely no more, where the inflow of pollutants is gone forever, well then what becomes of us who are tainted with sin ourselves, how can we possibly endure? Uh, well, the answer, of course, is, is to be found here, in the things that we are about to remember when we share bread and wine together, in the events of the first coming of Jesus. That's the answer to this puzzle. How will you and I be made perfect enough to be participants, to dwell in this land, this new heavens and new earth where there is no sin, where there is no evil anymore. How will we be suited for that moment? Well, only because of the cross, only because of what Jesus has done, only because in his first coming, Jesus went to a cross and received a judgment. It is about substitution. It is about that swap. It is about Jesus coming under the judgment of God, receiving it in full, in order that the righteousness of Jesus, the utter sinlessness of Jesus, can become yours and mine by faith. Because then you and I are fitted, suited, for the new creations where there is no sin and is no evil. We will belong there, but only because the judgment has fallen elsewhere and the righteousness was given to us in its place. So again, the first coming and the second coming, woven together. So as we share bread and wine um, together this evening, this evening, in a moment, 
I'm not going to preach for that long. Um, as, we, as we share bread and wine together in a moment, um, it's, kind of, it's kind of right that there is a somberness, and there often is to our Lord's Supper, isn't there? There's a sort of somber sense because we are conscious of the awfulness of Jesus having to die in our place, the awfulness of the crucifixion, the agony of it, the terror of it, the awfulness of it. But um, there is also right that in the Lord's Supper, there is a joy because Jesus chose to die for us. Jesus gave himself willingly for us and there is something wonderful about that to be celebrated, to be rejoiced in. And I'd love us to accent that sense of joy this morning. And I suggest that because of the final verses that I'd love us to focus on in Malachi are all about joy. Uh, it's over there in chapter 4 uh, and verse 3, sorry, verse 2, uh, where we read, But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. Some of the old translations used to have with healing in its wings. Pay careful attention and you'll notice in our final uh, carol of uh, the morning, uh, those verses, those words will reappear. For you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. What a fantastic image, isn't it? Um, I, I was looking on YouTube yesterday and I found a YouTube clip of frolicking calves. I thought about showing it to you this morning, but, but time was short, so I decided you'd have to go home and look at it on your own. It's a glorious picture. Can you imagine that the sun is shining uh, on a spring field uh, and released from the stall is a little calf who gambles. Uh, Vern Farewell said that I needed to use the word gambling, um, which is the, the OL version of gambling. Um, gambles out into the field and it just skips and jumps. It just sort of races around with, with utter delight and joy. It just exudes it. I mean, it's, you can't see that it's smiling, but it must be, uh, as it just jumps for joy. That's the picture. This is sort of a vivid enough picture of just how good it is to enter into the new creation, to arrive in the eternity that God has planned for you and me because Jesus died in our place, because we have the righteousness that allows us to be part of that new creation. There's your image. That's what it like, feels like to know the saving grace of God made known in Jesus Christ. And the reason that the verse Christmas, that the angels burst into song uh, uh, as they uh, sang to the shepherds on the hillside, well, they did that because they knew. They knew in a way that the shepherds had no idea about just how good the events of the first coming were going to be with their implication for the second coming. Musicians are going to come uh, back to the front uh, because our next hymn, uh, before we share bread and wine together, um, it's a hymn that focuses on that song of the angels. And verse after verse, it invites us to share 
in the joy, the joy of the angels as they sang of all that Jesus was going to accomplish. So it's sad and sing with joy to our God.